This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, streaming online at WVEW.org. And you're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We are here every Sunday from noon to one. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on iTunes. We have a podcast uh, just put in Indigo Radio. The views of this show are those of the guest and host, not the radio station. And Indigo Radio is a group of area educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. I'm Anna Milani, and I am a local educator and also current grad student at UMass Amherst. And I'm here with my co-host, Michaela Sims, who is the BUHS Diversity Coordinator. And today's focus is on jail and prison and race. We had a chance to talk with Latif Taylor in New York City who works on Rikers Island, um, Rikers Island being the main jail complex in New York City. It's an island that's about 415 acres between the Bronx and Queens. And Latif spoke with us about their work there on Rikers. And we also have Justin Helipolale who is in the studio with us today. And Justin works with Great Falls Books Through Bars, and they also do work at the Franklin County Jail. So Justin's going to be talking with us about their work and also a a conversation amongst all of us around race and prisons. We are going to start today with a song. Uh, It is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot by Etta James, and we'll be right back. Coming for to carry me home. Oh, swing low, swing 
set was Etta James with Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. I am Anna Milani, and we are going to go to the first part of the interview with Latif Taylor, who works on Rikers Island, and we'll be back after to discuss some of the things that they have said about working on Rikers. This is Anna Milani for Indigo Radio, and I am here with Latif Taylor. Latif works as a senior human resource generalist at Rikers Island. And Latif, first of all, thanks for coming on Indigo Radio. Oh, my pleasure. Can you tell us what senior human resource generalist means and how long you've been working on Rikers Island? I've been at Rikers Island going on uh, three years uh, this uh, March 2018. Um, I'm actually the first person to ever hold this title in 120 years at the DOC. Um, so I've had um, the great fortunate to be able to define the role um, in my own way. I've come to DOC as part of our original uh, Reformation group that started about four years ago. And the clear goal was really to improve our relationship uh, with our staff and find out where our gaps are, uh, increase our talent, and work towards uh, the reform effort by bringing the right people in. Um, so what I do is I manage all of our human resource satellite operations as well as offering support services to all of our different uh, facilities across the city, uh, which includes, uh, which included, I should say, uh, 13 jails, uh, as well as our courts, our two hospital units um, for about up to now 13,000 employees. And so when you are doing this work and you say that you provide support services, what mm. What does that actually look like? Can you describe some of those? Uh, it's, it can be anything from developing training programs, uh, helping people further their careers by learning new skills, helping our organization implement uh, learning development, but also performance management skills. And a big part of it really for me uh, passionately is, is wellness and health. I, from day one when I got there, the first thing that stood out to me was that we need to, in order for us to have reform and to create uh, true uh, progress uh, with uh, incarceration, is we need to mirror our services on both sides. Uh, so everyone who works in a jail, or, you know, because I work in jails, not prisons, but everyone who works in a jail is in jail. You know, the difference is you do go home, uh, but the environment is still the same. There's no different area where it's much better. So when it's hot, it's hot. Uh, when it's, there's when it's when there's a high tension, everyone there is tense. You know, so the effects of working uh, within the correction department and working with incarcerated individuals affects everyone. The individuals who are incarcerated, uh, their communities they they come from, uh, their families, uh, but also the staff, uh, whether frontline staff, whether someone's a nurse, a barber, a cook, um, a stationary engineer or a correction officer. Uh, everyone feels the effects uh, of incarceration uh, working in that environment. When you have an, the task to rehabilitate individuals that come through the system, the majority of the, even when they're in their programs, the majority of the people they interface with are going to be the staff. You know, that's the bulk of the time they're with. So the good that we can do in a session with a therapist um, for youth that's incarcerated can quickly be undone uh, interfacing with other staff members who are also not getting the care they need. So um, 
it's 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 a challenge, um, but I think it's important. Um, so if you're going to create a new environment, we need to create a new environment, not just for the people who unfortunately, you know, unfortunately have been incarcerated, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, while they're awaiting trial, but also for the staff that's working there as well. Um, that way, everyone sees the benefits of these programs. And just for clarification, are you working with both people that are incarcerated and Department of Corrections and correctional officers, or are you just working with the correctional officers? Well, there's there's a, a another you know that's another thing right from the outside looking into. Uh, typically, um, I work mostly with staff, so I work with staff directly. The main thing is working on culture change. All the work is connected. Nothing can be compartmentalized. It's, it's, it's circular. Um, so changing an environment, changing a culture, changing the lives of staff that, uh, that work directly with uh, incarcerated individuals affects incarcerated individuals. You know, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, view the, you view it from, you've got to view it holistically. You have to view it in, in a macro as well as a micro level. Um, now, we're a self-contained agency uh, or an organization, per se. So sometimes when people think about the jail system, what they do th- automatically think about is correction officers, which make up the l- vast majority of our employee and our staff. Um, but people don't think about the water has to be on, you know, computers have to be turned on, you know. So mm-hmm. we have everything in, in the three years that I've, almost three years I've been there, I had everything from a physician to a staff nurse to a creative, a creative art therapist to a, a recreational coordinator to a barber to a cook, electrician, electrician's helper, like I said, stationary engineers, uh, Java developers, you know, so our staff, every, every, every career that exists in society exists within the DOC, you know, so you're dealing with people from, who have all different types of goals, all different types of lifestyles, um, all different career aspirations, um, but we all have to work together in order to have this one goal, and our goal is to move from mass incarceration to transformational rehabilitation, you know, so when everyone's doing their job, uh, when all these pro- systems and, or, and, and programs are working efficiently, that is going to have the best, that's going to allow us to have the best outcome when we are servicing the community and helping, uh, helping incarcerated individuals reenter society. You know, but when, these, when, these, when our systems break down, when we don't have the support, uh, we don't have the staff, and we don't have the programs running well, then of course we're going to be unable to properly uh, implement these programs that will affect the lives of people incarcerated. Because you've talked a bit about um, the care that that people need there and the consequences of, like you said, everyone um, being in a place that is and can be very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example of a type of programming that you've done with people there? As far as that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. Uh, one of the um, one of the things we really got going now is is really great. So we hired a uh, we have a Buddhist chaplain who's the head of all of our staff chaplaincy, and what we do now is we have these uh, we have mindfulness uh, meditation sessions in our facilities with our staff, and uh, you, you know working on uh, staff uh, finding ways to uh, center themselves, find relaxation while being in a very difficult and challenging environment is important to us and we're looking to always expand that program. So uh, wellness has been very important to me. Uh, one of the things that we've increased is we do our health fairs. So we generally do one large health fair a year 
Uh, we expanded it doing health fairs uh, at the different facilities throughout the year, and we bring in outside vendors. Um, people will come in, they will talk about uh, meditation and yoga uh, providers and um, health screenings. Um, so we'll even have mobile buses that come out to, the, to Rikers Island, um, and they'll come out to the different facilities, and staff can come out, and they can get screenings of all levels, and they'll take their insurance right there on the spot. They don't have to make an appointment and just getting people to be proactive about their health care. That was Latif Taylor that you were listening to. They work at Rikers Island with correctional officers and other staff. We're going to go to a quick song, and then we're going to be back with Michaela and Justin to hear their thoughts on what we were talking about. Oh, mama. Oh, papa. You should have seen your little son, Mama, the first time the youth come to New York, them telling youth you mustn't skylock. Learn a trade or go to school, and don't you turn yourself in a fool. But now him gone a Rikers Island, him never want go a Rikers Island. But now him gone a Rikers Island, him never want go a Rikers Island. You should I hear what your mama say Keep on pushing drugs and then you must fade away You should I hear what your papa say Send you to America, no send you there to play But now him gone a Rikers Island Him never want go a Rikers Island Him used to chuck it from Brooklyn to Bronx And I born like the most top ranks But now for him government response Cause him gone a Rikers Island Him used to mix up with the Dan man And now him gone a Rikers Island Well oh mama, I wish you were around To see your son how him going down And how the waters them bounce him around Him used to chuck it from town to town And used to shot people all around man Uptown and downtown and all around But now him gone a Rikers Island Him never want no a Rikers Island And now him gone a Rikers Island That was Jamaican singer Coca T with Rikers Island And we're back here with Indigo Radio We were just speaking with Latif Taylor who works on Rikers Island. He was talking a lot about uh, wellness and health and programming for staff there. And so we'd love to get um, Michaela and Justin, your thoughts on that. I think that's really interesting. I listened to this interview before, but this is the first time I heard the phrase transformational rehabilitation, which I think is an interesting one. This idea that um, we've done something wrong and we can become this other transformed new human after making a mistake. Um, one of the challenges with that idea, I think, is that whatever's happening in our society, in this mini-society, as he described, basically this whole complex web that is this jail, that everything that exists outside the jail exists within it, is very much attached to the political economy that we exist in, and is connected to the history of the island itself, which I feel like the idea of having a healthy facility that floods, that is really susceptible to flooding and has all these other 
issues that he has no control over, Latif has no control over, it's interesting to think about health and wellness in a situation like that. I don't know. Justin, what are your thoughts? I think I was also struck by, um, yeah, this d description of this parallel society in which there's also these like roles and resources, like their role and the emphasis on supporting staff and, and they're talking about rehabilitation, but then also talking about programming for staff. And, and I think I'm also struck by the idea of re rehabilitation too, and that also within the jail, there are often resources available that aren't available in other, in other contexts, or for the same people who then end up in the jail can all of a sudden have access to both staff and people incarcerated, have access to education, mm. have access to mindfulness, have access to um, a Buddhist chaplain that they can go see at any time. And, and what does it mean to like wait until people are confined in this place to say, oh, now we want to support you? And when could that have happened earlier? Or, yeah, why is it that it, it's in this context that um, all the support then becomes available? Right. And how's it got to that point? Under the Department of Corrections. Right. That mm -hmm. actually reminds me of when I was uh, visiting the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, where my dad works as a doctor. And when I was going around with mental health workers, they were talking about just that thing where these people are coming in and getting services like housing, food, and medication for possibly addiction. But what is it that we need to do on the outside so then they're not doing this inside the jail. There's such contradictions there. Does, do any of you want to say anything else before we go back to Latif? No, I'd love to hear the rest of the interview. Okay. So this next part, just to introduce it, Latif and I were talking about sort of the uh, history of violence and corruption within Rikers, and Rikers is a bit notorious for that. I think you won't hear it in this part, but Latif does make a good point that it's not just about Rikers. Um, this is systemic throughout jails and prisons within the U.S., and we can find lots of different examples of that. Uh, the part that we're coming into is him, um, is Latif talking about race and class uh, within the, the staff and in the jail. There's a lot of issues that, and I'm not saying the DOC hasn't earned this reputation. You know, there's a lot of problems that have gone on there, and there's still a long way to go to reform it. Um, and there has been a lot of corruption. There has been uh, well-documented problems there that we need to work on. Uh, but this is also the most diverse uniform staff that we have, not only in New York City, but even across the country. So we're talking about black and brown. You're talking about racial diversity. I'm talking about racial diversity. Most of the staff are black and brown people. These are people that come from the same neighborhoods that we have. Um, most of the people who are being detained and being arrested and spending time at Rikers Island are. They not only come from the same neighborhoods, they still live in these neighborhoods. You know, sometimes they know the people who are coming in there. Um, so the, the, the concept or the stereotype that these people are just pretty much all there to wake up every morning and just abuse somebody um, is not only a misconception, um, but it's also, I feel, is, again, more institutional racism because we have other law enforcement agencies across the country that are guilty of way uh, of, of abuse guilty of murder and, and just as bad things that happen on Rikers Island. But Rikers is clearly always is always singled out for good reason in a lot of times. And we need to keep the pressure in order for us to continue to progress. But we also need to understand that these are opportunities for people who come from 
disadvantaged neighborhoods to have a chance not only to uh, create a career where they have some stability and they're able to build uh, for their families financially in ways that they wouldn't have had the opportunity, but they're also coming into the system looking at opportunities that where they can um, they can have a positive impact on people that they grew up with, people that look just like them, people that are come from their families, people who maybe not had opportunities that they have had opportunities to do. So um, majority of the time when, they, when you speak to um, employees and staff there, uh, but the majority of people you want to speak to, uh, they will talk about um, how important it is for them to have the opportunity to speak to someone who is incarcerated and try to encourage them to, you know, take a different path, you know, to motivate them. Would you say the class background is the same of the officers and the... Absolutely. Officers come from uh, Marcy Projects and Soundview Projects in the Bronx and 40 projects in, in, in Jamaica, Queens. Uh, they're from Bed-Stuy. They're from Williamsburg before gentrified. These, the, it's, it's, it's the same people. Mm. New York City has always been, you know, it's always been a city uh, where people of color have had to struggle economically in, mm-hmm. in New York City, uh, right. which is why there's a huge amount of, of, of employees that uh, go into civil, ser- civil service that are, are people of color because there's an opportunity for them again, to attain jobs uh, without being discriminated against based on their ethnic background or their socioeconomic background because they're taking a civil service exam. So no, it's, there's, there's no different classes. You know, you're, you're going to have captains and wardens who have had children incarcerated on Rikers Island, you know, uh, while they're working there. You know, so this, it's, it, there's, there's not a, it's, it's not a huge disconnect as much as maybe people think there is uh, from the outside looking in. No, I mean, actually, I think to me it makes sense. I feel like when I think about uh, people that are incarcerated, from what I understand, it is mostly people that are struggling economically. And then I feel like the, the, on the flip side of it, people who are employed are also possibly struggling or working class. And so it's an interesting situation that you have there, I think. Okay, this is Anna for Indigo Radio, and you were just listening to my interview with Latif Taylor. They work at Rikers Island working with staff, and uh, we were talking a bit about race and class. And I thought uh, Michaela and Justin, I ended with saying it was an interesting situation. I was wondering if you could maybe expand on what he was talking about and your thoughts on on what's happening around race and class. So I'm um, most familiar with um, Western Massachusetts. So I've done some volunteering in, at jails in Western Massachusetts, and I'm a grad student studying incarceration and, and jail reform. And yeah, I've also been struck by the frequency of people um, coming from the same communities um, and being on both sides of the staff and of the people who are incarcerated. And I don't know, I think it's a really helpful sort of like thing to keep in mind um, structurally that that these are like prestigious, co- comfortable in some sense, working class jobs that are accessible, um, but then also have this huge um, psychological and emotional tolls and like perpetuate the structural dynamic of um, communities of color or poor white communities policing themselves or each other. And... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 interesting to compare it from like a New York City context to 
like a rural Western Massachusetts context, and then thinking generationally too, we're in like two generations, you have family members on both sides. Or I think, I think for me it's been interesting in Western Massachusetts where there's a, a, a plurality, if not majority, white population incarcerated in some of the facilities mm-hmm. um, to think, to break that down and then think ethnically in terms of immigration or going back generations where it, it used to be the Polish and Irish and French Canadians and Italians who were um, being policed and surveyed and were the subjects of concern, like how are we going to integrate these people who right. have all these challenges are now, if you look at the names of the sheriffs or the deputies or the people in charge are a generation or two ago or the people being policed. Um, so looking at those dynamics and I think how those play over a longer term. It's really a tragedy that the poverty lends people in these two places, one on one side of the prison as almost like the overseer and on the other mm-hmm. side um, being incarcerated. And the tragedy is is that both situations have an impact on the family because here they're both at risk. I mean, I think that's interesting that Latif says, you know, they're both in jail. And the conditions are, and oftentimes, really horrendous. I mean, we saw after Katrina, like, how bad it was in general in the jails. And then once there was a storm, people were, like, just in horrible conditions to the point where at least... Well, the COs could flee, but the prisoners were stuck there. Like, the COs really, like, took off and left them, and they were in horrible conditions, like, up to their waist in water. Um, And similar things happened on Sandy, because some of those, in Rikers, some of the facilities are actually a a barge, like this huge barge that easily floods, even when it rains. Um, So it's, uh, uh, and I think that might be the one that they're talking about closing, is the barge. But it is a complex situation, but it, it does play very much to the time that we're living in now. If we look at housing, even in a place like Brattleboro, like where do the poor live? There's very limited places for people. There are a limited number of working class jobs. And so therefore, when someone says, oh, we're going to build a prison, everyone's like, yay, they're, they're jobs. For people who graduate from high school and they'll stay local, um, not thinking of the flip side. Um, in Vermont right now, we're in a situation where most of our the prisoners in this state have been shipped to Pennsylvania. And it was recently in the news, um, a man died of cancer that was is thought to be have been preven- preventable. Um, and so people are, now there's this huge... Um, desire to bring the prisoners home, but we're out of bond money, so they're like, oh, how are we going to build this prison? Um, that Vermont should have their own prison, and it's kind of ironic because I'm a person who's against prisons, but, well, is it better to, <laughs> to have your prisoners local? And so you're in this position to make these decisions that don't really make sense and that are against the people, and so that low-level crimes, the ones that fill these jails, probably should be decriminalized, like if you're trying to feed your family. Um, And I feel like we're moving towards, at least in in this town, too, looking at ways to help people with drug addiction versus just warehousing them into jails and prison. I don't know if you see that in Franklin County, Justin? Yeah, so 
I think I think we're at a, a dangerous or like challenging moment um, where there's a, this opportunity that's been opened by um, the the quote unquote opioid crisis mm-hmm. um, and the responses to the opioid crisis, which a lot of people have astutely pointed out is treating um, predominantly white opioid users very differently um, from other predominantly black Latinx um, communities that were policed during the drug war and responding with um, alternatives to incarceration or um, more treatment-focused incarceration, which is racist and unfair. And at the same time, it's like, okay, but then how do we, if this is happening, how can this be used to then, can, this, can these programs be expanded? Um, are these programs that should be expanded to lead to yeah, other, other alternatives rather than um, putting so much on to jails and prisons to address like, all of our social problems from, mm. um, from poverty to addiction to mental health crises? Because now like, those are, jails locally are the like, largest providers of mental health treatment and and within the existing system it's like yeah do we have that closer do we like put more resources into it because it's what is what exists so like yeah in this current moment where there's a different it seems like political will to think about Mm -hmm. um, policing addiction differently is that an opportunity to then to yeah push for push for alternatives or then is it also a risk to i mean always that um, it also opens the door to um, a different kind of surveillance or policing or incarceration that's more dispersed. So rather than building jails, there, yeah, and and pushing people um, out of jails, there's been a in- increasing interest or reliance on ankle bracelets or monitoring mm-hmm. um, through GPS or through um, check-ins for drug usage, and in which case, better people are out. But then there's also a possibility to include more people under surveillance, surveillance. because it costs mm-hmm. less, and you can you can contract it out to private companies that'll make a profit. Yeah, you know, I was Oof. looking that up. I feel like what's often forgotten because I was looking at this is that the U.S. locks up about 2.3 million people was the number that I saw, but about seven million are under correctional mm. surveillance, and I feel like that number is often forgotten or left out. But that's exactly what you're talking about. That includes probation, yeah. parole, and yeah. bracelets and all that. And so I think when we talk about the prison industrial complex, that needs to be in that conversation too. It's not just people actually behind bars. And then the other thing I just wanted to add on to what both of you were saying is that um, this thing around the possibly uh, another prison coming into, they're looking at Northwestern Vermont, is in the article that they were talking about. They're looking to build a 925-bed facility that they talked about pressing mental health issues. That was the wording in the article. And it just goes to show you there's no discussion about or the contradiction of thinking about you're putting the same sentence of mental health issues in a conversation about prisons and that that's a place that we need to put people that are struggling with mental health issues and they've you know, become de facto prisons or sort of de facto mental health facilities. And that really needs to be in the conversation too because um, I know that there are a lot of people struggling and you know is the answer be putting them in prison and jail right and we're not even meeting their basic needs outside of jail so we're supposed to put them in this facility and all of a sudden they're gonna have their needs met and come out and become productive citizens right yeah uh, Justin can you just tell us a little bit about the work that you do and with whom you do it and 
Franklin County. Sure. Um, so for the past couple of years, I've been um, part of a group called the Elm Street Think Tank um, that is composed of local educators um, and people who are incarcerated at the jail. And we meet and the group varies in what we talk about, whether it's sort of like day, day by day support or um, coming up with projects or proposals for um, things that folks in there want to do. And, and we've been sort of fortunate within um, the, the sheriff and the county's emphasis on programming to have this space and then also exist in kind of this limbo of we could also be shut down at any moment too. It's um, within the jail. Yeah, 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 so we meet in there. And, but it's been great. We've been able to do um, an art show every year, showcasing work by people who are, who are in there, um, as well as produce a couple zines, poetry and writing. So it's been, I think, just like another sort of contact point to talk about things that are going on inside and outside. And then, yeah, in addition to that, then I'm part of a group that um, is a books through bars group and we're all volunteer and we send books to people who are incarcerated. And we started out with the trying to focus on New England, or the mm -hmm. Northeast anyway, um, and then started getting requests from all over. So now we just mail to whoever from California, Florida, Texas. With, nice. Yeah, with the idea that there are a lot of resources, especially like books, and we live in an area with a lot of colleges and a lot of um, privilege and wealth, and so trying to redistribute those. And it's a, and definitely like a, a Band-Aid kind of um, project, but has also, I think, helped a lot of people, including um, volunteers who've, who've helped us, I think, just get another perspective in reading letters from people who are incarcerated and then trying to match their interests with resources. And as is like sort of this small little humanizing window. Mm. Um, yeah. Can you tell us what is it like when you go to the jail for the Elm Street think tank? Mm -hmm. I don't know, it shifts all the time. At first it was um, it was hard it was hard going in. I mean, and some people yeah. I know that I have uh, in our school system around here, there are a lot of kids living with incarcerated parents that mm -hmm. they some that they can visit because they're local and some that they can't because mm -hmm. they're in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, but just like the physical act and what does it entail because so many people have not been inside a jail. Um, I have visited a relative in jail, and I know that afterwards I'm pretty struck by the experience. So if you could just, like, the actual physical uh -huh. act of, like, what happened. Yeah. I think one thing that sticks out was from the first time of leaving and just this, like, intense guilt at how arbitrary it felt that after we'd had this, like, group and been talking and hanging out that I could leave, then other people just couldn't leave. And it seemed so, I mean, it was just so like clearly unfair. It's like, in, in some other circumstance, I could just as easily be on this side mm -hmm. and not be able to leave. But for, yeah, access to different experiences and, and privileges. Um, so that experience was, was one thing. And that's something that like other people I've talked to um, who've been part of like college classes and things that sticks. The other is, I don't know, this like mix of both it being this like very like intentionally deep 
personalizing, dehumanizing space where everything is uniform and the space is uniform and that's the design. Um, but then it's also a space where um, people who may not like otherwise be spending time together are stuck spending time together, like for, for better or worse. Like, and that there's all kinds of conflicts that, that happen because of that, but then also like really interesting conversations Mm. And through like the think tank that's been possible is to have this space where people who wouldn't otherwise like be in a position to hang out or likely to on a regular basis are interacting and hearing each other's stories and getting to know more about each other's struggles and how they got there. And in that part, it's like hopeful. Right. There's like moments where like it's like one of the most like encouraging places like I go on a weekly basis because of the people who are there and like the humor that gets that gets people through, right. that is so necessary. Um, and then I think like, wow, if this is possible here, then what am I doing outside? Why, it, there's so much else I should be doing. It's encouraging in that way. But then, yeah, and then there's like, and then you go, you process back out through metal detectors or through um, gate checks and all of that. And it's like, oh, okay, like, this is a contained thing. And, and, then, and then out to the parking lot and then through the gate and there's all these barriers that yeah, that make it so hard for for communication to happen. And I think, too, it would help so much if everyone were, like, in some capacity, um, especially people who, who in their lives don't have the experience of being incarcerated or knowing someone who is, um, were, like, encouraged to... I think people should, like, spend time in, in jails or visit jails at least to see what it looks like right. and that it would like just immensely change the conversation that we're having um, as a society about jails and what their purpose is and what effects they have because it's so it's such an isolated thing that happens like yeah, behind walls or, or far away right. um, but it's something we're all intimately connected to and that like our tax money goes to supporting these things and the mm -hmm. so much of our entertainment is based around incarceration and policing that it's something that's like very intricately tied into our culture in the, this US mainstream culture and yet is is also kept at such a distance yeah, in your life like it's separated from us so we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back after are we going to have a message or a song we're going to do a little bit of both okay a message and a song <laughs> you're listening to Indigo Radio um and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what Justin is talking about and uh, I think about books. Also, we want to talk a little bit more about... I'm just thinking before we go to break, what you were saying just, again, reminds me of my, my time at Maricopa County Jail. And I know my dad said something you were saying also is people really need to see this like how, and how many people have no idea what is going on inside. And I know that's how I felt but it wasn't until a couple hours after or the next day when I was thinking back on my experience of just the conditions that people are put in in jails. Um, and that was just one sort of window into it. Uh, and also just the very inhumane and like horrific um, situations that people are put into, especially those that are suffering from acute mental illness and the ways that they are strapped down and, and they're, I was told this is to keep us safe. And 
that's like an interesting question too of like who and in when my interview with Latif that we'll hear next week we talk a little bit about sort of who polices the police that sort of thing um all right we're going to take a quick break and this is uh public enemy black steel in the hour of chaos I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn, I said never. Here is a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. Cold sweating as I dwell in my cell. How long has it been? They got me sitting in a state pen. I gotta get out, but that thought was thought before. I contemplated a plan on the cell floor I'm not a fugitive on the run But a brother like me begun to be another one Public enemy serving time They drew the line, y'all They criticized me for some crime Nevertheless, they could not understand That I'm a black man And I can never be a veteran On the strength of situations unreal I got a raw deal So I'm looking for the steal I'm going for that On death row I grabbed his gun And he did what I said so And every man's the man got served Along with the time they served Decency was deserved To understand my demands I gave a warning I wanted the governor, y'all And plus the warden to know That I was innocent Because I'm militant Posing the threat You better s*** government My plan said I had to get out And break north Just like Oliver's neck I had to get off My boys had the feds in check They couldn't try nothing We had a force to instigate a prison riot This is what it takes for peace So I just took the peace Black for black It's high time to cut the leash Freedom to get out to the ghetto No sellout Six CEOs we got We ought to put their head out But I'll give them a chance Cause I'm civilized As for rest of the world They can't realize a cell is hell I'm a rebel so I this is Indigo Radio on uh, WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station. I am Anna Milani, and here with Michaela Sims. And we also talked with Latif Taylor, who works at Rikers Island. Um, we also have Justin Helopolile on in the studio. Uh, we appreciate you coming all the way from Western Mass. It's so nice to have someone actually in the studio with us. <laughs> So if you're just joining us, we've been talking about Rikers, jail, race, and also some of the local stuff that uh, Justin has been doing. And Michaela, I know you had a question for Justin. Yeah, I was just thinking about the idea of um, the criminal system and what happens to people as entertainment um, and that how with not only the reality TV of like cops and like bad boys, bad boys, what you're going to do, um, like throwing people down, knocking down doors, and also the video games and like the constant um, idea that it's bad guys and good guys. And even though the discourse since 9-11 of good and evil, so it's not, it's like it's constantly in our faces and we're constantly being told either you're a good guy 
or you're a bad guy and how that impacts the correctional system that we have. Yeah, I think, I feel like I see it or the, or the impacts of this very broad normalizing of, of the system of policing, of incarceration. Um, and that it's, yeah, ubiquitous, it's just everywhere in TV shows that I watch, TV shows that my friends watch. Um, but all around us, both the like sort of extreme dichotomy versions that comes up a lot in talking about um, things like prison abolition mm. and in making this proposal, usually the counter, the counter argument or the response often is like, oh, but what are you going to do about these like really extreme situations or individuals that are super present in, in, the, in discourse or imaginary in large part because of entertainment or because of news that, it, that also doubles as entertainment by focusing on really extreme cases. But then the response to those extreme cases then creates an entire system that affects many, like millions more people. So it's, I think that the extreme like good and evil, like there's just, like, just total evil and we have to have a system that'll meet that. Um, like that idea I think is still very strong, is very mm -hmm. prevalent. But then even like a more nuanced version or more complicated version to say like, well, there's crime um, and there's these like economic reasons and historical reasons like why people engage in crime. And so it's not just good or bad or good or evil, but, but we, still, we still need the police or we still right. need prisons on the other side. And that's like a lot more common in like progressive or also just as common in progressive sort of liberal um, circles too, I think also reflects just the 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 everywhereness of policing. That it's something that we can't that it's difficult to imagine, like hasn't always been the case or mm -hmm. like, couldn't should yeah wouldn't always be the case. That that this is just like how a society works. Where like we have a peculiar society where we incarcerate so many more people than any other country on the planet currently or historically. And that's actually a really unusual thing, but like through popular media, through entertainment, it becomes seen as such a normal thing. Like, how could it be otherwise? Right. Like when it has been here and it could be in the future. Right. I mean, I just like a time where enslavement of other humans mm -hmm. under this chattel slavery, under this current system of capitalism was normalized, right? And I feel like with all the statues being toppled of Confederate generals and stuff like that, people are saying, well, that's history and that happened and so we shouldn't pretend like it didn't and I don't think that that's the point the point is is that some things have changed and some things haven't and so if you look back to like convict leasing and necessity for free labor after emancipation and how jails were used as a way to get that free labor um it leads us to today. Those things are not unconnected. We're, they're very much connected. And so how, going forward, how can we see that reflection of the system saying, like, look, there's no such thing as chattel slavery except in the case that you're incarcerated, which is in the Constitution. But can, that, can we imagine something else, um, especially when there aren't enough jobs? And so the, what a lot of people say, well, why would you steal whatever, $5, whatever, to feed your family, just go get a job. You know, like, what do you, you're lazy, right? I feel like I hear that a lot. 
And it's like, yo, when is the last time that you looked for a job? Or like, have you applied for a job recently? It's pretty difficult and, and much more difficult for some people than others. And especially if you're formerly incarcerated. Right. How can you get a job when you have a record? And one of the, the beautiful questions that I get to say no to is, have you ever been convicted of a misdemeanor, sometimes it says? Or have you ever been um, convicted of a crime? Something that basic. And you have to check yes totally. or no. There's no, there's no line for an explanation. So. And also that the when you go back to what the broken windows policing was all about mm-hmm. that Rudy Giuliani brought into New York, it was just about policing those minor offenses, which we would probably call survival crimes. It is like stealing maybe something to eat. And so it was like a direct attack on poor people. Yet it was framed as this thing of let's have like community policing and have police go into communities and say they see a broken window or vandalism or like litter. It's about caring for the community, yet it was completely targeted at low-income communities. And so there you have people are in jail or prison because of something like they don't have a job or they're homeless and they're sleeping on a bench. And then it's a complete trap because how does someone get out of that? Right. It's not inherent in the system always for help for people without children. Um, often help is really targeted for families, and families don't always get the help, especially with the budget cuts we're facing right now. We're looking at children losing their health care, which that was like one of the number one things, like cover all the kids. And so then parents are making hard choices. Poor people are making hard choices. Like, do you take your kid to the hospital? Do you buy their medicine? Or do you eat? And that's real and I think that's hard for some of us to imagine but that is a real situation and if you're dealing with depression or some other issues of your of your own those small thing, things that seem small become bigger mm-hmm. and you end up in the system I wanted to ask um, just thinking about all that back to Justin around the the books um, and thinking about the history of people becoming politicized within jails and prisons. And I feel like you sort of alluded or talked a little bit about that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It, can that happen? And um, are there examples of that happening today? Yeah, definitely. I, and I think that was a, that for me personally has been a, a major motivation for um, wanting to be involved in, in a Books of Ours program um, and being interested in this as, for me, a political project because I've learned so much from people who've been incarcerated and written. Um, so I'm talking about like Angela Davis or Eldridge Cleaver or people who are like Russell Maroon Schultz, who, yeah, either through incarceration or also had experiences of incarceration, politicized others or became more politicized themselves. I think that like has for me been a, a running inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, motivation to be involved in this work. And then, and then through doing this, I've been a part of this, this group's been going for about a year and mailing books to people. I think other, other sides of it too have also like come to feel as important doing this project of connecting people with yeah, books with political analysis or written by other people who've been incarcerated is, is huge. But then also uh, meeting responses for things that are just entertaining or like fiction and and in thinking of, of like a larger project of how do you support people 
like being whole people who have interests who aren't just like this imagined political subject who's like the most revolutionary and so there's like a lot of like focus on like revolutionary political prisoners which I think is great and super important and I also support but then also um, supporting people who maybe they're not that's not that's not what they're doing right now or that's not their thing or they're on like a different kind of path and and have an interest in writing or in learning about this subject and then I'm also like like no I also want to support that and support people like having a space to be enter entertained or find like some like meaningful thing to read about and and thinking of that as a political project too, wherein so many facilities like across the country that are under-resourced, that's not an option. Um, there aren't like the resources to, mm. to, I don't have access to novels or to have access to things that, yeah, can help. And then, and then that's like, to some extent, an intentional strategy and then also just a neglect. Like we don't have to, that's not the purpose of a prison or the purpose of a jail and what like effect neglecting that part of a person has long term so it's like as a try, i've been thinking about this as like a political project in a broader sense by doing it and by like receiving responses and requests from people who are inside who i think like right off the bat i wanted to send all the all the pamphlets all the yeah radical literature that i could and then hearing like okay and people are interested in other things too and that's really cool and i want to like support that also but i think I think now there's like an interesting moment too where a lot more people are paying attention because of um, books about incarceration um, by uh, Michelle Alexander, New Jim right. Crow, or yeah, like Netflix documentaries like about Khalif Browder, about 13th. And my hope is, and part of the motivation too of, of trying to send resources directly to people who are incarcerated is that people will also listen to people who are incarcerated who've actually experienced it and not just to academics who are writing about it, but finding more ways to connect people because there are millions of people who've been through the system and who know it far better than me. I haven't had that experience or far better than a lot of the scholars and who are scholars themselves also in writing. And so I think anything to encourage um, communication and writing and reading directly and talking with people who are currently incarcerated or yeah. have been through the system is what I, yeah what I what I hope to encourage. And can you just tell us really quickly who Khalif Browder is for people who don't know? Yeah, uh, so Khalif uh, Browder was uh, only 16 in 2010 when he was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack, mm -hmm. and he was put in uh, Rikers. And he ended up spending three years in Rikers without any sort of trial. He was never convicted. Um, his family didn't have the money to bail him out. Uh, after three years, he, he actually also spent a, quite a bit of time in solitary. And, and after three years, he was released. And then in, I believe it was June of 2015, he sadly and very tragically committed suicide. Um, and actually, on that note, we're going to um, continue talking to Justin off air a little bit about prison abolition, because next week we're going to do the second part of the series, talk more with Latif about Rikers um, and talk more about these issues and just continue our conversation around prisons, what reform means and what is the difference between sort of reform, thinking about reform and abolition. Uh, we have to get out of here. We want to thank Justin. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And we'll hear your voice next week too. Um, and we're gonna go out with 
BB King, Chains and Things. Wow. I can't shake or lose these chains and things 